Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Good evening, children of the night. Come on in to the cabin. Winter is well underway, isn't it? The fire is lit. We have a bit of food and just about ready to start our story for the night. I'd like to give just a heads up as a warning to those who may be listening with those who are a bit squeamish or from some younger listeners who ignored the parental advisory on iTunes. But this one is a bit more gruesome than some others. Our story for the night will be David Williamson's Boys Will Be Boys. David Williamson has been writing horror stories for over 20 years and was first published in the 28th Pan Book of Horror Stories with his story, The Sandman. He then appeared in the last of the Pan Collection, the 30th Pan Book of Horror, which published three of his tales. Since then, he has had stories in the Black Books of Horror from... Montbury Press, Alt-Zombie from Hersham Horror, and will soon be appearing in two forthcoming horror anthologies from Crutius Libri Press, due out on November 30th. The Chameleon Man first appeared in Black Book Number 5, and Boys Will Be Boys appeared in Black Book Number 8. He lives near Brighton in the UK with his daughter and a three-legged lurcher named Othello. And now... 
David Williamson's Boys Will Be Boys. The whole experience was nothing like he had imagined it would be. Watching too many Hollywood romantic movies had lulled him into a false sense of well-being, which had left him ill-prepared for the grim realities of it all. He felt cheated. Cheated and sick. And not necessarily in that order, the truth be told. No. Sick definitively had the upper hand of the two emotions. It should have been a wonderful moment. According to all those movies, as well as many of his friends, at least. Something that would stay within his memory for the rest of his life. A truly unforgettable time that he would treasure forever. And in truth, it would linger inside his head for the rest of his days. But for all the wrong reasons. He had pleaded with his wife to be excused begged her to tell the midwife and doctor that she didn't want him present at the birth of their first child, even though the poor woman had been suffering the agonies of labor for over six hours and had now been given an epidural to help numb the pain. He could only think of himself, of his phobia with blood, of his terror of hospitals and all things medical. Then the unborn infant had shown signs of stress, and the doctor roughly brushed the father aside, telling him in no uncertain terms that he must remain in the room to comfort his wife while she carried out an emergency forceps delivery to save the baby's life. As his wife endured the agonies of the cold metal forceps being pushed inside her, her husband could only squeeze her hand in a half-hearted attempt at easing her suffering and try to show his empathy with her plight. While in reality, he was battling with nausea, the overwhelming urge to pass out, right there on the delivery room floor. Then, it was over. A nurse whipped the freshly born child over to some kind of device, which sucked mucus and blood from the baby's nose, and it took its first gasping breath of air after nine months of living in fluid. So, no smack on the backside for a hefty midwife, then? Another Hollywood myth blown out of the water. The child was wrapped in a clean towel and handed unceremoniously to its mother. It's a boy, stated the midwife, enthusiastically, while the doctor worked feverishly with needle and suture to repair the damage to the mother's torn vagina caused by the emergency use of the forceps. Unremarkably, the mother began to throw up, and the midwife pushed the tiny child into its father's arms before fetching a bowl for his wife. Again, in the movies... The newborn babe is a lovely, clean, pink color with fluffy hair and rosy cheeks, whereas this baby was covered in a thick, white, creamy material, mingled with traces of his mother's blood. It looks like snot. Or spunk, the father couldn't help thinking, as he gazed at his new son as though it were a creature from another world. Then he looked at the misshapen head and involuntarily held the child at arm's length. Not only did the head look like the shape of a coconut, but it was also yellow. In fact, the boy's entire body was yellow. And worse yet, the baby was covered in thick, coarse, dark fur. The tiny arms, back, and legs were as hairy as any chimp, and hair grew like sideburns forming a tiny beard on the infant's trembling chin. Look, Mum, Daddy's already bonding with his son, cooed the midwife mistakenly. As it happened, nothing could be further from the truth, in fact, as all Daddy wanted to do was to hand the monkey boy back to the midwife and get the hell out of there and have a stiff drink, or ten. 
but his wife was in a bad way. She had lost a lot of blood during the birth, and she was in a state of collapse after the hours of labor. A worried-looking doctor spoke in hushed tones to the midwife, and much to the new father's relief, he was ushered out of the delivery room and instructed to remain in the waiting room until he was called for. Okay, so it wasn't the stiff drink he really needed, but anything, anything was better than being in that room with the kidney bowls of bloody instruments and what could only be described as bits of his wife. That, and umbilical cord, and placenta, and blood. Lots of thick, red blood. She died that night without regaining consciousness. The doctor had missed the artery severed during the forceps procedure, until it was far too late to do anything about it, and though they worked on his wife for a very long time, she was now a cold, dead body down in the mortuary. And even now, all he could think about was himself. Never mind that she had suffered all that pain giving birth to their child. Never mind that she was cold and lifeless and lying alone on a stainless steel tray deep in the bowels of the hospital. What would he do now? After all, he was alone too. Just him and, oh God, him and Monkey Boy, of course. The thought crossed his mind. More accurately, it didn't just cross, it remained resolutely within his brain, that he could flee the hospital, run away, and leave Monkey Boy where he was in the nursery, and never return, never see that misshapen skull, or yellow skin covered in thick, coarse hair again. But then a very rare spasm of guilt entered his head. Even he couldn't leave the dead body of his wife in the hospital morgue. His mind conjured up the scenario of the police becoming involved if he didn't return and sort out the arrangements for her burial. He could imagine the press getting hold of the story and dragging it out for weeks and months. His business would be ruined. His friends would desert him. His life would also be over, just as surely as his wife's was. The newspaper headlines flashed before his self-pitying, tear-filled eyes. Husband flees hospital after wife dies giving birth to monkey boy. Cowardly father leaves brave dead wife and horribly deformed baby to rot in hospital. Those and a dozen other banner headlines ran through his mind, and he knew. For no other reason than self-preservation, he could not simply leave her there and slip out unnoticed into the night. He also knew with a dawning horror that he couldn't leave his, the word almost refused to form in his head, his son, the monkey boy either. As it turned out, the yellow tinge to the boy's skin was caused by a touch of jaundice, which was soon remedied. Also, the misshapen skull had apparently been caused by the forceps delivery and quickly returned to a more skull-shaped skull after a few days. Even the thick fur somehow rubbed off within a week or so. Perfectly natural, many babies have exactly the same thing at birth, he was told by a nurse, and she was right. The boy was now a healthy pink color, and had no more hair than any other baby of a similar age. So, what are you going to call the little chap, then? asked the nurse, whose specialist subject appeared to be baby fur. I, um, I haven't thought about that just yet. A lot on my mind. You know how it is, he replied lamely. The truth be told, 
He had only ever thought of the child as monkey boy since the birth, but at least he had the good sense not to tell anyone of this. Even he realized that a child couldn't go through life with a name like Monkey Boy. Supposing he ended up going to Eton or Cambridge, what then? Well, best to think of a name. And as soon as. Just in case, added the nurse mysteriously. He had no idea what just in case meant, but agreed to put some thought to the matter, more to shut her up than anything else. He considered Kong and Cheetah briefly, but they were simply ludicrous notions. Damien was also in the running. After all, hadn't he killed his mother? But that was also a tad obvious. Then the idea to Google the word death came to him, and that led him to mors, mortis, the Latin for death or of death, and he decided to corrupt these words into morris, which was what the child was finally called. There would be no christening, his father figured that anyone who came into the world by causing the death of his own mother did not deserve the protection allegedly offered by such a sacred ritual. He would just have to fend for himself in that respect. Morris was a strange baby from day one. He never cried, not ever. Even when he was wet and hungry, he would just lie patiently in his cot until the rapidly hired nanny attended to his needs. He's such a wonderful baby, she often enthused about her charge. Just a little angel he is. His father thought that angel was just about the complete opposite of what the child really was. He would lay there, his big dark eyes staring up at his father with no trace of emotion, no hint of a baby mind behind the steady, cold stare, just a chilling sensation that the adult was being studied by the baby like a specimen in a laboratory. His father was convinced that he had been brain damaged during the birth, but the hospital strenuously denied that anything of the sort had occurred. No, he was just a very quiet baby, perhaps unusually so, but by no means brain damaged. Morris could speak fluently by the age of three. This in itself was not that strange, but there had been none of the usual baby language. No da-da-das, no goo-goo-goos, no blowing bubbles while learning to use his mouth for anything other than eating. No, he simply couldn't speak, and then he could. It was as straightforward as that, and none of the so-called experts could explain why it should be. For once in Morris's short life, they couldn't use the well-worn phrase, perfectly normal. He could also read, not baby books, real books proper novels, newspapers, scientific journals, in fact anything that he could lay his tiny but unusually strong hands on. And no one had ever given the boy so much as a single second's worth of tuition in the fine art of learning to read. He could also write, not childish nonsense, not fairy tales or silly rhymes, but proper adult prose together with a lot of technical stuff that even his father could barely understand. Morris was thrown out of playgroup on the excuse that he wasn't engaging, either with the staff or the other children. But his father knew that he had intimidated the adults working there by studying them constantly and talking to them as though they were the children and he were the adult. He also refused point-blank to join in with any of the childish games or sing any of the infantile songs, and while the other children napped during quiet time, Morris would be found either engrossed in some mighty tome 
or would merely sit quietly staring at the staff as they nervously chatted amongst themselves, every so often casting a sideways glance in his direction. Infant school was a similar experience, of course. The headmistress confided to Morris's father that there was simply nothing they could possibly teach the boy. In fact, she admitted, the boy could undoubtedly teach some of her staff a thing or two. So what to do with a five-year-old boy genius? Obviously far too young for secondary school. Not mentally, of course, but the boy would be tormented from day one by the older boys. And even though his father had no feelings towards the boy whatsoever, he didn't want his son to suffer needlessly. Fortunately, aside from the fact that his father earned a very good living as the proprietor of a chain of successful estate agencies, there had also been an insurance payout on the death of his wife, as well as a hefty out-of-court settlement from the hospital in an attempt to keep their obvious negligence quiet. In short, they were a little more than comfortably off when it came to finances. It was possible, therefore, to hire a private tutor for the boy, someone suitably qualified to teach such a young but incredibly intelligent child as Morris. It was possible, but very difficult as it turned out. The first tutor, an elderly woman by the name of Doris Hoskins, lasted only three days before fleeing the house never to return. She babbled something about Morris being too strange to work with as she beat her hasty retreat, sending a friend round to collect her belongings a couple of days later. The second tutor fared only slightly better by making it through the first week. He was a retired public schoolmaster who suddenly discovered the urgent need to visit a sick relative in Australia. The third and fourth didn't see out a whole day between them, and the fifth simply refused to be interviewed for the job by a five-year-old child. The sixth, however, seemed to make everyone happy, Morris especially so. She was a woman in her late twenties by the name of Jane Mitchell, and had come very highly recommended by the agency employed to find the right sort of person for the job. The boy's father was also smitten by the woman, and they got on like the proverbial house on fire from the moment he opened the door and saw the very attractive, blue-eyed Jane beaming a huge smile at him and offering him her delicately manicured hand to shake. Even Morris, who had never in his five years on earth been known to smile, had a fixed grin on his small face as he stared in open admiration at his new tutor. At last, someone who both father and son liked and could get along with. Within six weeks, the father and the new tutor were getting along very well indeed, and had started a passionate affair with her creeping into his bedroom, when Morris had gone to sleep and staying there all night, every night. Morris was very quick to notice the changes in Jane and his father. He noticed the way that they looked at each other. He spotted the way they brushed against one another when passing in the hall or kitchen. He spied his father playfully pinch her perfectly shaped bottom and saw the way she giggled when he did so. He noticed all these things, and for the very first time in his life, Morris was feeling confused. Confused, and another emotion, which, after researching through several books, he discovered was called jealousy. Being an emotionless child throughout his life, Morris wasn't sure that jealousy was the correct diagnosis for this new felt emotion, but something was definitely wrong with him. And, if this was indeed jealousy, of what, or whom, was he jealous exactly? This was something he couldn't understand, something which, although he could look it up in a reference book, 
and understand the words he read within, he couldn't apply the learnt facts to himself. He couldn't figure out the root cause of this feeling, and it bothered Morris. It bothered him a lot. Six months had now passed, and the boy, though still deeply puzzled by these strange sensations, was still happy in his own way with life, and with his tutor in particular. He had never known any real love or affection, but he was sure that Jane loved him. She was always very kind towards him, at least, and used to playfully ruffle his hair when he managed to solve a particularly difficult problem, which he, of course, invariably did. He found the hair ruffling very annoying at first, until he realized that this was her way of showing him affection, or love. So it was with some amazement that his father called him into his study one evening to find Jane and him holding hands on the settee, both with huge grins on their faces. Ah, Morris, his father began nervously. Jane and I, well, we've decided to, um, get married. Jane will become your mother. And as if to confirm the fact, Jane held up her left hand to show Morris the large diamond engagement ring, which glinted brilliantly on her finger, and she flashed the boy an equally brilliant wide smile of happiness. Morris's reaction took the happy couple completely by surprise. Initially, he stood with a puzzled frown, creasing his young brow. But moments later, he rushed across the room and threw both arms around Jane's neck, hugging her close. Oh, mummy, I love you. And there were, incredibly, tears in the five-year-old's eyes. Morris had never been known to shed so much as a single tear in his entire life, so this was a complete revelation for his stunned father. The boy clung to Jane's neck for an uncomfortably long time, and she was forced to gently ease him away from her so that she could breathe. "'Don't you think you ought to congratulate Daddy as well, Morris?' she asked quietly. Morris stepped back and wiped the tears from his eyes with the back of his hand. He took a long look at Jane, and then at his father. Then he shook his father's hand as he would shake a stranger's. "'Congratulations, father,' was all the boy said, almost, but not quite grudgingly. There had never been any sort of affection between father and son, and it seemed to be an ordeal for both of them. "'Thank you, Morris. I'm pleased that you're happy with the news.' Morris turned his attention back to Jane and smiled. "'I'm very happy. Thank you. And now, if you'll please excuse me.' And with that, he left the study, closing the door quietly behind him. "'Strange boy, that one,' said his father upon hearing his son running upstairs to his bedroom. "'Very strange.' Jane leaned across and kissed her future husband full on the lips. "'He's just a kid. A very intelligent kid, but a kid all the same. And now he's a happy kid at that. We have no idea what it must be like to lose a mother at your birth. It's enough to make anyone a little odd, knowing that they died bringing you into the world.' Her fiancé pulled her close to him and gently kissed her forehead. "'I guess you're right, Jane. I've never really thought of it like that.' he said. But he was also thinking, but why the hell was he so weird even as a baby? He had no idea about his mother dying in childbirth back then, but he kept the thought to himself. Morris lay on his bed, arms crossed behind his head, legs crossed to the ankles, eyes wide, and staring up at the ceiling. He was experiencing another strange emotion, or was it the same one he'd felt previously, only in a different form? He was perplexed about the whole thing and had no idea what to think. As always, 
he decided that further information was required to enable him to make a balanced judgment on the matter. He had read and outgrown every reference book in the house, and Jane had talked his father into buying the five-year-old boy a laptop, which would open up the whole world of knowledge to the child. Morris sat up on his... Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Bed, flipped open the laptop, and switched it on. He typed the word emotions into the search engine and waited for the results. Morris was busy reading very late into the night, way past his usual 9.30 bedtime, and he was perturbed by both the articles he read, and perhaps more so by the strange noises coming from the direction of his father's bedroom, noises which could either be construed as pleasure or of pain. He could not decide which, noises which culminated in Jane screaming, Yes, 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 before the sounds ended and the house fell silent once more. Silent, that is, apart from the gentle tapping of Morris's small fingers on his laptop keypad, as he now decided that further investigation was needed on the matter of these strange sounds coming from his father's room. The boy was late getting up the next morning, which in itself was unusual, as Morris was never late in rising. Jane took one look at his pale, tired face and asked, "'Are you okay, Morris? You look very white this morning.' and she placed a cool hand against his forehead to see if the boy had developed a temperature in the night. Jane's hand against his brow felt somehow very pleasant, and an involuntary shudder made its way through the boy's body. Morris, you're shaking. You are definitely not well, young man. So back to bed for you, I think, she said, and took him by his clammy little hand and led him over to the staircase. I'm all right, thank you. Just a little tired this morning. I didn't sleep very well last night replied the boy, gripping tightly onto Jane's hand as he spoke. The thought crossed her mind that maybe he heard their passionate love-making of the previous evening, and Jane blushed automatically. She smiled nervously at the boy and said, I hope nothing disturbed you. Kept you awake? Morris looked her square in the eye and held her gaze. No, nothing disturbed me. Why would it? Jane tried to disguise the relief in her expression but it was impossible with Morris's eyes boring into hers. Attack was her only defense. Well, whatever kept you awake, young man, it's back to bed for you for a few hours to catch up on your sleep. And she playfully patted his scrawny rump and pointed a well-manicured finger towards his room. 
The boy did as he was told, as he always did, in fact, and returned to his room. He climbed under the covers but couldn't sleep. The only thing in his young mind were the images he had seen on various websites last night. Images of men and women coupled together in various positions, with the women calling out as Jane had called out to his father last night. Yes, 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 they screamed, and said other things like, Fuck me, fuck me. And although they seemed to be in pain during those acts, they also appeared to be enjoying it as well. Once again, Morris was feeling confused by the whole gamut of emotions now affecting, or perhaps infecting, his mind. But one thing seemed absolutely clear to him. These were definitely the same sounds that he had heard the previous evening, sounds made by his father and Jane, as they did the same things he had witnessed other couples doing on the websites he had visited, things that he realized could only lead to one ultimate result if they were to continue. And that thought brought yet another new emotion crashing into his five-year-old mind. The wedding arrangement seemed to be all that Jane and his father could talk about so far as Morris was concerned. It had originally been planned to take place in mid-August, hopefully during a beautiful summer's day, but for reasons unknown to the boy, the wedding had been hurriedly brought forward and would now take place in just over four weeks' time. Coincidentally, the happy event would occur only two days after Morris's sixth birthday. We can have a double celebration, Morris, enthused Jane, as she ruffled the boy's hair in her usual manner. Morris smiled dutifully, but mused that none of his previous birthdays had ever been a cause for celebration, so why would this one be any different? Then the bombshell was dropped, the very scenario that Morris had both envisaged and dreaded beyond anything else in life came to pass. Jane and his father were seated as before on the sofa in the study. They linked hands as though their very lives depended on the close contact. His father asked Morris to take a seat. Er, Morris began his father. I have some wonderful news to tell you. Father looked particularly nervous while Jane beamed a huge smile at her future husband and squeezed his hand as though to urge him on with the telling of the wonderful news. He cleared his throat and continued. We, Jane and I, are, we're... His voice petered out. He knew the words, had rehearsed them several times before calling the boy into the study, but simply could not say them. Jane smiled, squeezed his hand once more, and continued on his behalf. What your father is trying to tell you is that you are going to have a baby brother or sister, Morris. Great news, isn't it? And as Jane and his father stared in goggle-eyed admiration and love for one another, they failed to notice the look of horror on Morris's five-year-old face. The boy turned on his heel and left the room, closing the door quietly behind him. Morris, his father bellowed, angry that the moment, their special moment, hadn't met with at least some sign of enthusiasm, a token congratulations, anything but silence and departure. He made to stand up and follow the boy, but Jane pulled him back. Leave him, darling. He's in shock at the news. That's all. It's only been you and him for so long, and now suddenly there will be four people sharing this house. It's a lot to take in. And after all, he is only five years old. No matter how smart he may be, he's just a very young kid at heart. Jane leaned across and kissed the father of her unborn child passionately on the lips. He'll come round. You'll see, she added afterwards. Morris was lying on his bed, arms folded behind his head in his usual thinking mode. 
but unusually there were tears in his eyes, tears of anger and of self-pity and of bewilderment, all of the confused and unwelcome emotions he had been experiencing since Jane had arrived in the house had finally bubbled over in one huge cascade of jumbled feelings which had erupted into stinging tears and choking sobs. Morris had begun to believe that things were improving in his life. He had someone, Jane, who actually seemed to care about him. Even his father had shown him an almost considerate side never before witnessed since her arrival, and the whole house seemed a better place in which to live. His life had been changing for the better. But now this. It had been inevitable, he realized that much. But so soon? Just when, for the first time in his life, he was getting some attention, some affection, it would now have to be shared with another, and Morris was wise enough to know that his share of the love would be considerably outweighed by the portion which would be heaped upon the new baby. Their baby. A shared part of them created when they made those noises every night in father's bedroom, just along the landing. Morris sat upright on his bed and wiped the tears from his eyes with the cuff of his jumper. He rubbed a hand across his face, as though wiping sleep from his eyes. No more tears, he told himself. There would be no more crying, and no more emotions from him. He had let things get to him, and this was the result. The boy left the bed and walked to his desk where he flipped on his laptop and waited for it to come to life. It was almost dawn before he finally switched it off and climbed into his bed, falling asleep within moments. It was Morris's sixth birthday, and Jane and his father had managed to find the time in between making the last-minute arrangements for their big day, as well as visits to the hospital for prenatal checkups and scans to organize a small party for him. Small being the operative word, as Morris had no friends and no opportunity to make any. Anyway, he would have had as much in common with an average six-year-old as he would have had with a dinosaur, and at least he would have found the dinosaur a lot more interesting. So the party consisted of his father and Jane, his former nanny, and, as his father had no living parents or siblings, a distant aunt and her equally distant daughter. Morris was both embarrassed at being the center of attention, and annoyed at the way his former nanny and this great aunt, whom he had never heard of before, made such a fuss over him. He was a wonderful little baby, crowed the nanny. A proper angel he was. Never cried, did you, Poppet? And she pinched his cheek affectionately, while Morris squirmed and tried to escape back to the safety of his room only then to be cornered by the great aunt and her dopey-looking daughter. "'You look so much like your mother, Morris. The dead spit of her you are,' she said before turning to her daughter. "'You remember Auntie Jill, don't you, Celia? Doesn't Morris look like her, eh?' But Celia looked as though she may well struggle to recall her own image, even if she had had a mirror in front of her to help. No one had ever mentioned the fact that he looked like his late mother before then, he considered that maybe this was the reason that his father had despised him so much over the years. But then again, until Jane entered the house that day, his father seemed to have despised just about everyone. So maybe that had nothing to do with it after all. Finally, after what seemed like a lifetime, the party was over, and the guests, such as they were, had left. There were a few childish toys and games given to Morris's presents, left unopened and unplayed with on the floor beside the settee. Jane and his father were clearing away plates and glasses, 
feeding them into the dishwasher, and busily chatting about the wedding in two days' time, when Morris interrupted them in the kitchen. Thank you for my party. It was nice, he offered, half-heartedly. That's okay, Morris. Glad you enjoyed yourself, replied Jane. Now it's off to bed for you, young man. You've had a busy day, she added. Morris could hear them talking about the wedding once more as he climbed the stairs to his room, his birthday already forgotten as they engrossed themselves in their plans for the future and the future of the new baby. The gentle, muffled tapping sound woke Jane first. The curtains were pulled, but she could see daylight creeping around the edges, and she glanced across at the bedside clock, 8.25 a.m. Then there was another light knock on the door. Jane pulled the duvet around her to cover her nakedness and called out, Yes, come in, as Morris's father stirred beside her. The door opened slowly, and in came Morris, carrying a tray heaped with breakfast things, making his way carefully across the gloomily lit room and setting it down gently on Jane's bedside table. There, he said, you made me a birthday party, and I've made you breakfast in bed. And he smiled broadly, before opening the curtains and flooding the bedroom with early morning light. His father struggled to sit up, his eyes squinting against the sudden brightness, and said, What's up? What's going on? Nothing is up, darling. Morris has kindly brought us breakfast as a reward for giving him a party yesterday, replied Jane. Ah, right. Thank you, Morris. Very kind, I'm sure. Morris smiled tightly and said, I'll leave you to it then. There's tea, coffee, orange juice, toast, and marmalade. Enjoy. And he left the room, closing the bedroom door behind him, before putting his ear to the thin wooden paneling to listen, hearing his father express his incredulity, while Jane laughed quietly as he spluttered his amazement. Morris left them for one and a half hours before he returned to their bedroom. He'd calculated that would be more than enough time for the drugs mixed in the tea, coffee, and orange juice to take effect. He had already experimented on a neighbor's cat, and had simply extrapolated his results to account for the increased body mass of adult humans. Thank God for the internet, he thought. You could buy almost anything on there these days. His father's credit card had also helped, of course. He had tried, however, to buy Ruhypnol, but discovered that it was banned in many countries, and anyway, his research had led him to believe that it wouldn't be powerful enough for his needs. So he had looked further, and had discovered that ketamine, mixed with a small amount of chloral hydrate, should be ideal, and his experiments with the cat confirmed this. Alas, his first trials with a couple of squirrels in the large back garden of the detached house had gone badly wrong, leaving one stone dead, and the other permanently paralyzed down one half of its body. He opened the bedroom door cautiously and peered inside. They were both completely motionless. Jane was out for the count and lying on her side, but his father was lying propped up on his pillows with his eyes wide open, staring straight ahead. Morris checked on Jane first. He felt her pulse. It was slow, but steady. Then he checked his father. He was quite shocked to see his father's eyes trying to track him across the room as Morris made his way around the king-sized bed towards him. But then Morris realized that this ability to see what was going on, what was about to happen, would make the whole thing more enjoyable and worthwhile. The boy left the room and soon returned with another breakfast tray. Only this one was covered with a tea towel from the kitchen, 
Morris set the tray down carefully on his father's bedside table and whipped the tea towel away before tilting his father's paralyzed head so that he could see the array of knives and other implements arranged carefully upon it. A look of sheer terror came into his eyes, and Morris noted with delight that his father was trying to call out, to move, to run away, but he remained motionless. The combination of drugs were working well, and would continue to do so for some time to come, time enough for Morris to complete his work at least. Morris stripped off the duvet and threw it into a corner of the room. He noticed that both of the adults were naked, which was good, as it saved him the trouble of struggling to remove any night clothes. He then flipped Jane over onto her back and arranged her, ready to carry out the operation he had watched several times on the internet. He had paid very careful attention to detail and had made scrupulous notes to aid him. Morris selected a couple of very sharp kitchen knives from the tray beside his father, and as an afterthought, he picked up a pair of garden secateurs as well and popped them into his back pocket. He had decided only last night that he would operate on Jane first, so that his helpless father could have the pleasure of watching the whole thing, knowing that he was to blame for the situation. With this in mind, Morris adjusted his father's head so that he could better see what was about to happen. Morris opened Jane's legs and spread them wide. Most six-year-olds had never seen a vagina before, but Morris had been doing his homework and had seen plenty, one way or another, on the internet and was completely unfazed by the experience. He took a small knife and jabbed it into her genitalia just to ensure that Jane was out for the count. When there was no reaction, he plunged the knife deep into her lower abdomen and started to cut across just above the pubic bone, as he had seen surgeons doing as they performed cesarean section deliveries. The knife was sharp, but no scalpel, and it took Morris quite some time to hack his way across so that the pouch was large enough for him to see what he was doing for the next phase of the procedure. The sheets and mattress was now covered in blood, and Morris had to keep wiping his small hands on a towel taken from their end suite bathroom as the knife was becoming too slippery. After several minutes of delving about inside Jane, Morris was certain that he had found what he was looking for and removed it with a few cuts of the kitchen knife. Satisfied, he withdrew the uterus and dropped it unceremoniously on the bed between Jane and his father. He briefly considered sewing up the gaping slash, but then quickly discounted the idea as a waste of time. And what would be the point, anyway? She was going nowhere. Morris turned his attention to the uterus and easily located the small sack containing the tiny fetus, his would-have-been brother or sister. The fetus was just as he had seen in books and on the internet. It looked more alien than human at this stage of its existence, with the head disproportionately larger than its body, and... Making certain that his father could see clearly, he had no compunction in snipping off his sibling's head with the secateurs. Morris allowed himself another rare smile. It was a job well done, a successful operation. Now it was father's turn, and a much simpler procedure. Once again, Morris adjusted the paralyzed man's head so that he could clearly see what was about to happen, this time to him. Only his father's eyes gave any hint that he was aware of the horror of it all, but he was completely unable to prevent it from happening, or even close his eyelids to block it from his vision. Morris held his father's penis in his left hand and stretched it so that the testicles were dangling like two fat plums. Then, he picked up the secateurs once more and snipped through his father's manhood at the very base, 
holding his trophy triumphantly before the adult's eyes, blood dripping from the severed scrotum, and forming a gory puddle on his chest. There, said the boy. That'll stop you two having any more children, I think. Morris left the room while his father was forced to remain staring at the space where his genitalia had once been, the blood welling up from between his thighs in thick red gouts. Morris struggled back into the room with the heavy cans of petrol and placed them just inside the bedroom door. He then gathered up all his equipment and took it down to the kitchen before returning to collect the drugged breakfast things. He carefully cleaned every item in boiling water laced with bleach, making sure that there was no trace of blood and, just as importantly, no remaining sign of the drugs he had used. He had already dumped the bottles they had arrived in into a bottle bank several miles from his home. Satisfied that every trace had been removed, he closed the kitchen door and headed up to his parents' bedroom. His father was, by now, trying to move. Morris could see the fingers of his left hand twitching and a faint movement in his left foot. Good, the boy thought. He would not only know what was happening, but would also feel everything as well. Morris unscrewed the tops from the petrol cans and began pouring it around the room paying particular attention to the two people on the bed and ensuring that they were thoroughly doused in the highly flammable liquid. He removed the petrol cans from the bedroom, took a new box of swan vestas from his pocket, showing them to his terrified father, before stepping back to the doorway, lighting a couple of matches and flicking them onto the bed. Despite his research, he was quite shocked at the powerful way the fire ignited and took a hold of the room. Within seconds, it was ablaze, and Morris only just had time to shut the door before the flames reached him. He hurried downstairs and returned the cans to the large, triple garage where he had found them, the garage directly beneath his father's bedroom, the garage where, when Morris calculated enough time had elapsed to completely destroy all evidence of what he had done to the two adults, now being cremated within, he would set another fire, which he was confident would disguise the one he had lit in the room above. When the floor gave way, and the upstairs bedroom crashed into the garage below. Not even the best fire investigation officer would be able to tell where it had initially started. And after all, Morris was just a six-year-old kid. Kids played with matches, didn't they? He'd be very sorry. He'd clearly been very naughty. But then, boys will be boys, won't they? And that was David Williamson's Boys Will Be Boys, as read to us by Tales to Terrify's old friend Antoinette Bergen. We've been hearing a lot from her recently, hmm? Antoinette Bergen is twisted and dark. She is pessimistic and sarcastic. Weird and demented, all these things combined somehow make her absolutely adorable. She is the author of Bedtime Stories for Children You Hate and has been known to mail packages of lime jello to people she deems worthy. She can be found on Twitter as at Nettie underscore Bergen, and probably won't harm you if you follow her. And that will be our story for the evening. Take care of yourselves as you head out into this cold world, and come back to us next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.